Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTC and Host. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we talk a little bit about current affairs that are relevant to the uh, electromagnetic warfare and electromagnetic spectrum operations community. Uh, I have two guests on the show with me today. Uh, the first is John Knowles. He is the editor-in-chief of the AOC's Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance, the JED. And my second guest I'm pleased to have back, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jeff Fisher, who is also author of military fiction thrillers. I've had him on the show frequently in the past to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in the war in Ukraine. So in addition to that topic, we will also cover the congressional defense budget process and the passage of the National Defense Authorization Act in the House as well as a panel discussion that AOC co-hosted with the Hudson Institute, uh, featuring co-chairs of the Congressional Electromagnetic Warfare Working Group. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome my first guest, John Knowles, editor-in-chief of AOC's JED Magazine. John, it's great to have you back here on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for having me back, Ken. All right. So we, we haven't actually talked for quite a bit. Uh, I think AOC Europe was the last time when uh, we did the the daily shows there in terms of like really substantive, hey, what's going on? So thought it'd be a good time here in the middle of the summer to bring you back on the show, have a have a brief segment with you, kind of what's on your mind, what are you following? And then, of course, you know, my next guest, you know, we'll continue to dive in a little bit with Fish. Jeff Fisher, but uh, wanted to have you on the show first. We're recording this on uh, July 19th, uh, so a week before we air. So some of the stuff we talk about might continue to develop in the next week. So just to let the listeners know that this is not a live recording. But again, great to have you on the show. Good to see you're doing well. And uh, thanks for joining me. Just to start off, you know, softball question, you know, what kind of has been on your mind? We've just gone through NDAA. There's been some events that taking place in the area, things that you're tracking. So what's been on your mind a little bit uh, in terms of the EMSO front here in the recent couple months? I think the, the there's two things that have really been on my mind for for a while, like for a couple of years, but they're starting to, you're starting to see some measuring sticks. So the two drivers out there are the Ukraine war with Russia and then the EMS spectrum superiority strategy and the follow-up 2021 implementation plan. And those two things, are they're on my mind like every day. Like what lessons are we pulling out of Ukraine? What's happening there? And and those are broad brushstrokes because I'm not sitting there looking at, you know, the uh, chair of the Joint Chiefs is looking at. But in Ukraine, for example, EW has played a role there. We're doing this the, the day after the Hudson Institute did their congressional EW working group roundtable and, and, and Congressman Bacon really, I thought, was pretty astute in how he assessed it. And that makes sense because he's an EWO. He really did a good job of, of talking about not just how they're using EW, but how the 
some areas where they lack EW, both in Russia and in Ukraine, is impacting operations as well. So there's some lessons, both positive and kind of in a negative space sense of what could be happening. So in the negative space sense, aircraft survivability, airborne electronic attack, they're not big pieces of the fight over there for either side. And so although Ukraine has some harms and Russia obviously has some EW, the air war over there is not a big factor because they really don't have the ability to get past the air defenses on either side. So you're seeing very limited use of helicopters and very certainly very limited use of um, strike fighters. So you're seeing that's kind of a missing link. And that was apparent from the very first days of the war when you know Russia lost an airlifter full of paratroopers and Congressman Bacon alluded to that and how that impacted probably the, the operation from the very get-go. And then obviously the anti-tank guided munitions and things like that that we've been supplying, Russia really couldn't defend against those. The other side of it, though, is the use of SIGINT in supporting their artillery and their kinetic strikes. So they've been very good at using middle location to find targets um, to strike. So that's kind of the lessons out of Ukraine. Another piece of it is electronic protect, electromagnetic protection, and just the jamming that's going on there, the drones. Counter UAS is, is a big mission over there. And so that's been another area of success for both sides, I think. At the beginning, you mentioned, you know, the, the two drivers, the EMSO, the EMS stra superiority strategy and Ukraine, the developments on both of those, you know, sometimes we go back and forth topic, you know, between the topics. Do you think you're seeing sort of a little bit more clarity on both where they're coming together, maybe informing each other or helping each other in as as we message this, the developments of in the, in, in the EMSO space that the strategy, a lot in the strategy was pointing to what was going to happen in future conflict. And now we're seeing it in Ukraine, we're seeing some clarity. And are they informing each other a little bit more or are they two still separate drivers that we need to kind of continue to bring together a little bit more? I think that the Pentagon quietly is observing and drawing lessons from the war in Ukraine, the EW lessons, the EMSO lessons that I was just talking about. I'm skeptical because it's the Pentagon, it's the DOD, how well those lessons are getting injected into the bureaucracy. They probably are, but there are ways that we don't see is apparently in the open. But where I am seeing that discussion happening is in Congress. So yesterday's roundtable with Hudson Institute was full of discussions of the Joint EMS Operations Center, the JEC that's standing up at, at Offutt next week some of the, the way that they, they, they talk about Ukraine, range modernization, international cooperation, things like that. And so those are all pieces of the EMS spectrum superiority strategy that are in the conversation in, at Hudson. And then you look over at the NDAA and the House side was a little weak as Bacon, again, indicated that they didn't really, weren't able to push a lot of policy and governance issues into the House version of the bill. But the Senate, definitely picked up the slack and their version of it is very, very strong. So I do see those two kind of working together. And I think that Congress is doing a great job pushing that, like to make sure that that stays in focus area for the Pentagon. And for our listeners, I want to kind of go back a little bit to, to and talk a little bit more specifically about the roundtable that happened yesterday on July 18th. And again, we're recording this on July 19th. Many of our listeners maybe not did not realize that this took place. And so 
just to kind of you know, provide a little background, the AOC co-hosted a congressional panel discussion with the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, yesterday morning. AOC President Brian Hinckley, along with Hudson uh, Senior Fellow Tim Walton, had uh, the co-chairs of the EW Working Group, the Electromagnetic Warfare Working Group, including Congressman Rick Larson from Washington State, who has been a longtime co-chair of the EW Working Group for about 20 years now. Uh, Congressman Don Bacon from Nebraska. He has been, of course, a co-chair for since he came to Congress, I think in 2017 was his first year. Uh, former one-star U.S. Air Force uh, general, as well as group commander of the Compass Call. And then the new co-chair for the EW Working Group in this Congress, uh, Chrissy Houlihan from the 6th Congressional District in Pennsylvania, uh, Congresswoman Houlihan, fantastic person. I have, I've had the chance to meet her. Engineer, MIT, Air Force background, really smart in industrial-based policy, microelectronic supply chain, those types of issues that are really driving not just engineering space, the technology space, but also kind of the future education space, you know, STEM and everything. So she's been a fantastic addition to the working group this year. So those three uh, appeared at the Hudson Institute for about an hour of question and answer with the, the hosts as well as audience, and they just covered a range of topics on this space. And so that's what you're referring to. So I want to talk a little bit about that specifically, and we're actually going to air that panel discussion sometime in August on the podcast. So listeners will get to hear that. But you mentioned some of the takeaways there that, you know, Congressman Bacon talking a little bit about what's been happening in Ukraine, how it's been informing NDAA. I was really struck with just Congressman Larson, you know, he he references, you know, he has such a background in this in terms of his leadership in Congress. There's been a lot that's been happening, but also a lot that we're still talking about 20 years later uh, with the working group. So focus on that a little bit, you know, just tell us a little bit about what you, you gleaned from it. I thought it was a great discussion. And then we'll get into the NDAA specifically a little bit because that was just on the floor as well last week. So I really appreciated those three, it was kind of interesting because you, in terms of time served, you have a brand new member in Congresswoman Bullahan. You have Congressman Bacon, who has obviously a lot of deep expertise in electronic warfare, electromagnetic warfare. Then you have Congressman Larson, who's kind of the corporate memory of the EW Working Group right now. So he could talk back to that 2003 report that, that brought up issues like personnel and leadership and organization. And he's, he was the one that really did a good job of chiming in on, on, on those. I think the report he was referring to was actually, it was 2005 or 2007 because it, AOC worked on it, you know, helped contribute with some panel discussions to it. Um, we, we still have a copy. I think I might try to link that into Twitter for our audience to uh, take a look at. But he, he referenced it and a lot of the, the findings from 20 years ago still... It was a couple of years in the making so that, you know, that it does cover that time frame. A lot of the recommendations he raised, you know, they're still relevant today. Yeah, I think because EW's challenges are kind of timeless. You can go back. I always look at EW through a dot mil PF lens, right? So doctrine, organization, personnel, training, facilities, leadership, all those things, uh, material. And, and when you look at that dot mil PF lens, you can go back to World War II. You can go... We're pushing on materiel and people there, right? We didn't really have policy or anything like that. You can go to the Cold War and how we, you know, really built out a professional force there. 
and invested in materiel. And then you get into the 90s and we start de-emphasizing the personnel and the leadership and the organizations. And we just kind of keep punching the the materiel button on the Coke machine. I always say that, but you know, we we go there and we, we just, hey, we got a problem. We got to go QRC our way out of that, get a quick reaction capability or whatever it is or reprogram money. And so we've been very material oriented in the like 1990s and certainly the 2010s, 2000s, sorry, 2010s, we started to try to reassert that balance between all those dot mil PF letters and, and, and get a better sense of that. And that's still the struggle we're in today is building out that well-rounded dot mil PF sort of enterprise. Well, I was wondering, are, are, are we kind of slipping back into that a little bit with Ukraine? I mean, we, you know, every couple of weeks, there's a new, it feels like there's a new supplemental coming, providing a, you know, a different uh, list of things to, to aid the conflict. I believe someone, I can't remember who it was at the panel mentioned just, you know, you know, one perspective is, you know, we're giving enough keep Russia from winning, but not giving enough to help Ukraine to win. Yeah, enough to defend Ukraine, but not enough for, for Ukraine to win. So like, are, are we kind of slipping back into that where we're just kind of hitting the material button again and because it's safe and maybe just easier? Or are we making progress in addressing, you say timeless challenges, and it's true, but like, is that kind of insane to think that you can affect timeless challenges? <laughs> are we actually making progress in that? Yeah, we've been there before. We did this well in the Cold War. Right. We did this, we had a very, you know, we had leadership. We had two stars running EW and the services. We had fairly good training relative to, you know, we had EW in our major exercises. So there were contested environments, electromagnetically contested environments, things like that. When you talk about, it's very visible to see the lists of, of equipment transfers that we make to Ukraine. But I think that's partly a function of our strategy there, which is we are providing material assistance and not a lot of other things to Ukraine right now. So we are that you, you tend to see that more. But when I look at, at where we're sort of internalizing the lessons from Ukraine, I look at the NDAAs, especially House and Senate really, but the, the focus on electromagnetic protection, are we gonna be survivable and our system's gonna be survivable and effective in a contested electromagnetic environment with a lot of jamming. So we're thinking about that. That's definitely coming out of Ukraine in anticipation of anything that happens in the Taiwan Strait. Are we developing the, the right governance and policy and things like that? But you're seeing just a ton of emphasis on EW training, right? You're seeing a lot of, uh, in, the, in that legislation, I've never seen so much language about, about uh, multi-domain operations, training specifically on the Senate. In the Senate version of the bill, they really specifically talk about training ranges, live training ranges, in Alaska and, and down in Arizona, standing Fort Huachuca out, things like that for test and training. So you're seeing like very, that feeds both the, 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 the material development side on the test side, but it also develops the, the EP side and how, how well we're gonna be able to, to, to train all of our troops in a contested environment, things like that. So you're seeing, I'm, I'm seeing those are the things that give me a little bit of optimism that some of the lessons out of Ukraine are getting where the DOD might say, we have identified it, but we're not going to do anything about it yet. Here comes the Senate and the House coming and saying, let's do something about that too. Let's, let's fund that. This is on our radar. And so I've never, like, traditionally, when the EW Working Group started, it was, it was trying to get at policy, but most members that weren't members of the Working Group, most congressional members that just came in, they were looking at, okay, you know, here's a program and it's in my district. I'll, you know, weigh in on that. And you had Congress kind of, 
doing some of the, not micromanagement, but a lot of congressional ads and things like that that were going on. And so it was very material oriented, even though the EW Working Group was trying to be broader than that, it wasn't getting any traction in the, in the, in the Pentagon. And it was actually struggling to get enough traction in the House. And, and, and now it's different, I think. Back then, you know, we weren't even addressing the material piece either. So, I mean, there was a lot, you know, you could, you could, you could spin a dial and you, you, know, <laughs> you, could, you could hit something that we weren't doing right in EW back when the working group was created. I mean, we weren't doing material, we weren't doing organization, we weren't doing leadership, we weren't doing anything. So I think that that, you know, that made it a, a difficult task at the beginning because you're trying to do a lot. But uh, you're right, you know, we, there was a lot of emphasis on earmarks and things of that nature, less so today. But of course, now the times have changed. You know, when I was on the Hill back in the late 90s, you know, we did earmarks, you know, we did a lot of things, those types of things. You had to. You still do earmarks and special projects and different things, but it looks a lot different. It's a little bit harder to just functions differently. So it's a little bit different process. But um, you're right. You know, so, um, you know, the, the House voted on the NDAA last week. It was a very controversial go of it uh, for a long period of time. And then I guess on earlier this week, uh, the Senate released its bill. They're going to bring it to the Senate floor next week or the following week, right before August recess. So we should be going into August recess period, district work period, with the bill having passed both chambers. Of course, now it gets into the conference report. And I think you, you by taking just a rough look at the bill, Congressman Bacon alluded to this at the panel discussion yesterday. The House bill was kind of light on MSO, not a lot of policy. But the Senate bill, like you mentioned, is very rich in it. So I think, you know, a lot of attention is going to be paid to is the Senate bill the vehicle moving forward that is the base bill for the agreed upon NDAA. Again, will probably happen in December timeframe. But, you know, going back to the, the House bill passed last week, pretty light bill in comparison, but very controversial. A lot of it has to do with the current state of politics in, in the House, a lot of different challenges than in years past. But what is your outlook? You know, now the House is switching to appropriations bills. You know, we have the end of the fiscal year coming by at the end of September. Definitely going to be a CR. What are you looking for in the next few months from Congress in terms of their leadership on defense matters and MSO specifically? Well, I think, again, going back to yesterday's in Hudson Institute discussion, Congressman Bacon said, you, you need iron on the ramp. I tend to look not at specific moments, but at, at, at time frames, windows of time. And if you, for me, going again, because I have, you and I have a lot of memory <laughs> that goes back decades, sadly. But, you know, just to go back to your point, and then I'll answer your question more specifically, but to your point about how the EW Working Group, what it was focused on or what it could do when it started back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, what types of bites of the apple could you take? <laughs> they were very limited. And you couldn't have a very adoptable PF conversation with the Pentagon or for, with most of Congress. And now, the last, just, just say two to three years, the House and the Senate, if you take that two to three year window, they're having a tremendously complex, very informed conversation with both inside Congress, but, but with the Pentagon. And they have really, that's a very different dynamic than 20 years ago. So we have, I think, if we can sustain it, and I go, Congress has turnover, so you got to constantly educate people and keep them aware. But 
But I do feel like we've made a lot of progress in being able to expand that conversation into the full range. I'm, I'm much more optimistic than I would have been even five or six years ago. To speak to your question about, about what specifically are in the, in the bills, I think Congress, the last step Congress wants to see taken is, oh, the final step I'd say they'd like to see is instead of Congress asking for four more compass call aircraft, or, you know, in the case of the House, you know, shipboard EW for lighter vessels, uh, things like that, very specific things. They want to see the Pentagon drive those decisions and ask for those things. So there's still the uh, flow of power or the flow of who's putting iron on the ramp to go back to Bacon's con conversation. It still has a lot to do with Congress funding things that the Pentagon isn't asking for. The House bill is obviously, they were very focused on deficit reduction. So they didn't really have an opportunity to do a lot of it, but they did the year before, as, as Congressman Bacon said. The Senate bill is again saying, we do not want to keep gap filling for you. We want the Pentagon to pick what it needs, especially in the areas of MSO. And if we have this elaborate conversation, I say elaborate, but a complex, sophisticated conversation through a dot mill PF lens, then you will understand what you need to build you will actually inject that into your bureaucracy and you will get it funded in your original palm, your original request, not playing the gambling game of, is Congress going to fund this this year? Because obviously in the House, they, if you took that gamble this year on four compass calls, you would have failed. Last year it worked, this year it didn't. The Senate was able to do some stuff too. But, but again, Congress does not want to be micromanaging MSO. They're really trying to hand this off to the Pentagon they're really, and that's why they're very optimistic about the Joint EMS Operations Center led by a two-star. Again, Congressman Bacon said it's probably not in the right place, probably needs to be J3, J5, somewhere in there on the joint staff, but it's better than nothing. It's, it's getting better. So I do feel like we're on a trajectory that is improving. Sorry for that long answer, but that to me is, is that big picture over time, that evolution of the conversation has changed. And that's, I think, the most important thing. We just have to be able to sustain that conversation in that sophisticated understanding. That's a lot to do with the AOC. Some of what was talked about yesterday was, you know, kind of this cyclical aspect to it. And so I think it's good that we can kind of step back and say, okay, well, now we're actually seeing an incline, a progress, something that's a little bit more steady, a little bit more kind of breaking that cycle a little bit. So I, I you know, I, I agree. I think it's good that uh, to see where we're going on that front. Well, John, that, that's all the time we have for this uh, segment. You know, we obviously only touched a fraction of what we always want to talk about. So we will have you back on the show here in a couple months, of course, to continue this conversation, especially with everything that's happening on the appropriations front and the, and the events front uh, over the summer, the rest of the summer. So thank you for being here on From the Crow's Nest, sharing your thoughts. We will be back right after this. Hello everyone, I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, 
We also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. All right, my uh, next guest is a friend and colleague of the show, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel and author of military fiction thrillers, Jeff Fisher. Call sign Fish. Fish, welcome to From the Crow's Nest once again. It's great to have you back. Hey, Ken, it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me back. Hey, well, it's always good to hear from you. And, and you know, it's been a, a couple months here since we last talked, obviously, at AOC Europe. And uh, wanted to just have you on to kind of fill in a little bit about what you're hearing over from you know, Ukraine and the European theater and what's going on in your area. We just got done talking to John Knowles uh, from the Journal of Electromagnetic Defense. We covered a lot of topics, kind of lessons learned that we're seeing over there translate into the Pentagon as well as defense budget and so forth. But uh, you have a different lens. And so I wanted to bring you on. And first question, what's on your mind the last couple months? Yeah, it has been a while. And, and look, I, I really enjoyed uh, AOC inviting me out for AOC Europe. I had a great time there. I was probably a little bit one of the more provocative speakers, and that's okay. That's good. Uh, and, and, uh, we definitely had fun editing everything and, and putting that on the <laughs> podcast, you know, so that was great. Yeah, so, uh, and it was a good time. And, um, but, you know, I I, I, I kind of chuckle, right, because I one of the things that I'd called out was that I, I think that, you know, Ukraine was going to have UAVs that got close to Moscow, or they were going to do some kind of thing where they got into their defenses. And 
there was a lot of, you know, staunch, long, you know, you know, long in the tooth kind of EW and, and ground-based air defense guys who said, you know, you're, you don't have a prayer to get, to get something in that deep. And I said, well, I disagree. And five days later, of course, uh, the, the news came out. So I, I wish I wished that, uh, that the conference went for two weeks so I could come back and say, say, hey, say, I told you. I think from that, right, there's been a lot of people who have really started reevaluating how we're building radar systems uh, for ground-based air defense, right? And and to to be fair, I I place a little bit of the blame of where we are today on, I think, some of the senior leaders of the United States Air Force over probably the last two decades. And not in a bad way. I, I You know, when we have air component commanders out there who have done everything they can to kind of inhibit or, or really mitigate how much drone use is in a, a battle space. Uh, we also have a government, by the way, the FAA, who's very anti-drone if you, if you haven't noticed right so they're they're not big fans of drones flying around so they've they've done a lot of things to to create you know regular regulatory states and, and that, that that make it really hard war doesn't really care about regulatory states right what do you hear combat no they don't they don't care the 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 enemy always gets a vote and we now have a situation where we have a lot i mean a significant amount of drones uavs unmanned vehicles that are flying around the vast majority of using the electromagnetic spectrum. And it's a very different battle space than, than ones that I flew in or ones that I think air component commanders had before. We've talked about this in the past, about this kind of reevaluation. It seems to be a continuous trend in in the conflict over there. You know, something happens and it re, we reevaluate what, how we're thinking. You mentioned reevaluating how we're thinking about radar defenses, radar systems, and whether or not we properly understand them. What, what do you think causes such a... Maybe it's maybe it's a risk averse or some sort of misunderstood notion on some of these systems and what they can do and what they can't do and whether or not UAVs could get that close and not. You said the enemy always gets a vote and we're starting to realize, oh, well, some of this technology isn't as uh, invulnerable as we think, leading to that kind of over-evaluation of what a, a system is capable of. There's a couple of things. I, th- I think, number one, the general public has a very low understanding uh, of what goes on and in, in how an airbase defense system works, right? From, you know, they, they just think that, you know, there's a missile that goes up and hits an airplane. That's all there is. And you and I both know, as do many of the listeners, right? That it, there's the missile, there's the, the fire control radar, there's the guidance radar, there's the acquisition radar. There was an air picture that was being built. There was ISR that went into building that. There were filter centers, there were air, you know, so there's a vast array of, of how an air defense network is made. And, you know, I, I remember when I was a little kid and my, my, uh, my uncle was in the Army. He worked with stingers, right? And the, the answer was, if it flies, it dies. Because there's the little taglines, right? And so if anything flies, it dies. I, I mean, I, I didn't know what a stinger was. I'm like, okay, so if it flies, so you could kill a bird, right, with a stinger. <laughs> so you could, you could, you know, and, and of course, I'd, it's just, it was an easy catch line. And we become a, a, a world that, that really likes to live in five-second sound bites. And, and I think that's part of the problem as well. One of the developments in the U.S. side, of course, has been the uh, passage or the, you know, it, within in the House and now next week will be in the Senate of the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, kind of the main policy bill for the Pentagon that Congress uh, passes every year. Surprisingly, there was quite a bit of a fight uh, in the House, especially about Ukraine funding. Now, that was pushed back. You know, the, the funding did go through and, and, and probably will be increased to, to some degree in the Senate. They just voted to kind of turn down a new way of evaluating purchases and stuff like that. What were you hearing over there in terms of 
how Congress was responding to or has been responding to funding the war in Ukraine, you know, in terms of is it enough? You know, were they concerned about Congress kind of stepping in and stopping that? What was some of the effect that you saw over there? So that question is, um, my God, I could spend 20 minutes on that, right? From a correct and informative perspective, uh, I was able to to realize that, you know, the arguments were unexpected. I mean, you, you, we've, we've got a situation where there's a lot of congressional members, both left and right, that come from districts that are predominantly one party or the other. They have a lot of freedom of maneuver because they, the, these congressional members, they realize there's, there's very little chance that they're going to leave, right? So you, you have the Matt Gatches on, on one side and you have the, you know, the squad on the other and they, they can get away with, with a lot. You and I both know uh, a couple of congressmen, one that, that we both, I, I think we hold, you know, in high esteem is, is Don Bacon, who's won three or four now and basically a 50-50 district, right? So, uh, and, and he's the, he's a, he's a centrist. He, and to be fair, if you know, he's, he's, he's pretty staunch conservative, right? But, but he has to be centrist and he has to represent the people that, that he works for. And he works really hard at that. So, you know, I, I talked to him a little bit and he's like, we've got that chihuahuas on either, at, on either ankle, but the middle of the body is, is going to hold, so we're, we're going to be fine. But I will tell you, the, the reason I said it's a really interesting question is, look, I'm in a country where when Zelensky came to the parliament in Austria to speak, half of the parliament got up and walked out on him, right? So in, in Austria, there's a significant amount of support for Russia is one way to look at it, or there's not a lot of support for Ukraine, and there's a lot of people who aren't really big fans of, of America. And, and it's amazing on social media, whether it be Twitter or other places or news outlets in Europe even, that believe that everyone's an information operations warrior. Right? Everybody who's on social media is an information operations warrior. And you can you could take the chihuahuas chomping at, at the ankles and basically say, look, especially if you're pro-Russia, right? So these are narratives I'm hearing. U.S. support for Ukraine is, is going to go away. Russia's going to win. There's no way Ukraine can stand up. Ukraine better get to the negotiation table right now because it's it's the best that they're going to get. And you're like, no, I, I don't I don't think that's right, right? Like, but it's amazing. And 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 the greater amount of followers you get on Twitter, the louder your voice gets, or the more more prominent your voice gets. And it's really Twitter. Me is is truly fascinating. I I love the platform. I I'm on it a lot. I'm on Twitter Spaces, but. Everybody is an information operations warrior there. It's crazy. You mentioned uh, Congressman Don Bacon. Yes, he a good good friend of uh, AOC, and and we uh, talk a lot. I uh, actually just had the opportunity. So AOC co-hosted a panel discussion with the Hudson Institute earlier this week uh, with the EW Working Group. Uh, we had Congressman Don Bacon, Congressman Rick Larson, and uh, Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan, three co-chairs of the EW Working Group there, to ask them about uh, MSO, and particularly in the context of China, but obviously a lot of the conversation still spent on discussing Ukraine. Um, and we're going to actually air that panel discussion in a future episode from the Crow's Nest for those who have missed it. But, um, you know, it, in the Defense News today, uh, there was a, a write-up about that panel discussion, and, and I just want to read this to you, and I want to get your, your take on it. It says, you know, U.S. military is failing to speedily develop and deploy electronic warfare equipment amid a global competition for electromagnetic spectrum superiority, according to Congressman who served in the Air Force, Don Bacon. After years of putting electronic warfare on autopilot, troops' ability to now jam and spoof and spy from afar has withered, said Don Bacon. That was discussed at the panel discussion, that that concept of withering. 
What is your response? How do you uh, fall on that? I think that there, there's there's a little bit of truth, right? Uh, but I think we're on the we're on the upslope. How far back in EW you want to go? We we could we can you know we can definitely go back to where we know there were a lot of offsets in EW systems that were taken to to build out stealth technology in the in the F F one seventeen, right? And there was a belief that low observable and stealth technology was going to be impervious and radar, radars wouldn't matter. And therefore, if radars didn't matter, we didn't need electronic warfare. Um, <laughs> that didn't turn out to be true. We also believed, you know, there were, I shouldn't say we believed, people in the electronic spectrum world, we we knew the answer. But a lot of people in the GPS world say, you, you, can, you never jam GPS. GPS is, is impervious to jamming. Made no sense, right? <laughs> so, um, but now we're in a situation where we realize that GPS does can be denied. We're looking at a battle space in Ukraine that, that's got potholes all over it like it's a World War II battlefield and precision fires are, are non-existent. I do believe we're on the upslope. I know that we're putting money back into it. We've got, we got the new EC35, uh, you know, EC35s coming in. It's going to be, I won't say a game changer because I don't know enough about it. Hopefully I can get up to BAE soon and, and, and take a look at it. Maybe we can have a discussion on that. We'll talk to them and see if, if they want to do that. And I know that the Army and people under, uh, you know, a fine, a fine uh, colleague of ours, Colonel Lori Buckout, uh, she did wonders at turning around the, the United States Army and trying to get the Army to turn, you know, with, with you know, 300,000, 400,000 troops. It doesn't turn very easy, right? So so hats off to her for, for a great effort. Well, I, I think we're climbing. If we're not critical of our past and we don't remember our past, we could easily fall down that rabbit hole again. And we need to, we need for the young EW listeners out there to remember and to know about these things in history, right? So that when people say, saying, well, we're going to offset EW for X, Y, or Z, Hey, dude, you, you, we rode that horse once. It, it wasn't. It wasn't fun. Let's try. Not, let's not do it again. John Knowles in the previous segment, you know, he raised a very interesting observation. You know, the panel discussion happened amid uh, obviously the House passage of the NDAA. The Senate version was not out yet. It just got out. I haven't really looked at it uh, very closely yet, but John has, and he he raised a, a point that was very astute: is that you know, the House version of the bill is very light on EW this year. It was very rich last year, but this year it's just it's, it's very light. It's light across the board. But the Senate bill has a lot in it. And he made the observation that it's really interesting when you look back and forth, when it's light on one side, it's richer on the other side of the House and Senate. And you can tell that the process is working where Congress is paying attention. They're just using they're learning how to use the right vehicle to make positive changes. And this year, that vehicle's better in the Senate. Next year, it might be the House, and you'll see things flow into that way. And so I think that what we're seeing, like you said, is we're on the upswing. That's great. But we are still seeing a lot of recurring themes and issues that we haven't properly addressed. And so, you know, I think we're, we're cautiously optimistic, I guess you could say, you know, and we'll see where, where the next couple of years takes us. Yeah, 100%. And, and look, I wish, you know, and by the way, I completely, if, if John says that the Senate's heavy, I'm, I'm going to go with him, right? Because I think I can read, he's, he's phenomenal, right? So I'm just going to shake my head when he, say, when he speaks. But, you know, here's the interesting thing. The chief of staff of the Air Force, who's now going to be the, the chairman, you know, CQ Brown, when he came in the Air Force, the big thing was accelerate, change, or lose, right? That was his, that was his slogan, right? And I don't know if you saw the recent article that I wrote about the, the MiG pilot, right? But it's a travesty. It's a horrible story, and and, and I'll tell it to you in, in, in a quick you know quick one minute. But but basically, a MiG twenty nine pilot from Ukraine who who'd been flying combat missions since twenty fourteen came over on a pilot. They call it. It's like a pilot exchange program or a pilot. You know, it's an opportunity for guys to go through flight school, 
And, and we open this up through State Department. It's part of the, the embassy construct. And, and this guy gets to the United States. He goes through a little bit of language training. All he wants to do, though, is, is still be back in his home fighting, flying MiG-29s at, at, as he says, you know, 30 meters. He's flying MiG-29s at 600, feet, 600 miles an hour. And he, he's dropping bombs and, he, you know, he's, he's defending the homeland. We, and he's proud of it. He, he's got his 10 combat missions. And so he's a hardened, hardened kind of guy. So what does the Air Force do when this guy gets here, right? They put him in in UPT and he's flying an a, 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 a T six Texan and and he's like why am I why am I flying a T six Texan and I had a, a couple of whistleblowers from the the schoolhouse there that were my friends and I, I won't name them but but they came out like you're not gonna believe this this, this guy's what are we teaching him <laughs> like he's teaching us stuff like what you know one one of uh one of my friends said that I'm supposed to go out and teach him how to fly low level I mean this in in a T six at, at two hundred and ten knots and the guy's flown lower than I'm allowed to fly him in and at 600 knots carrying munitions and dodging surface air missiles. And, you know, it was horrible. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, and he, all he wants is he's denied three times. He's asked three times to go back and this is, it's a waste of his time. He wants to be flying. Finally, after a year, whatever, he finishes UPT, he finally gets to go home. And one of his first missions he shot down and killed uh, because his muscle memory of flying MiG-29s is gone. Right. And they, they're partially, I, I, I clearly blame Ukraine for not actually spinning them up, but they are a country of war and flight hours are very precious. So getting him back in the cockpit and getting him back to war was important. But I also put a lot of blame on the United States military for going, you were laid a golden goose egg. <laughs> Here's a golden goose egg. Why don't you send him to Nellis and put him in the adversary flight school or just put him in a couple fighter units and let him travel around and talk about what it's like flying the MiG-29 in combat against Russians, against the SA-10, SA-20, SA-22. And, and instead, we we pigeonholed him because nobody wanted to accelerate change. Nobody wanted to, to push on leadership. Nobody said that this is wrong. And and it took a couple whistleblowers to come out and, and bring it up. And it's really sad. It's a great story to kind of cap the, the conversation here because, I mean, I think that that terminology, it, it sounds great. And, and now you're looking for it to actually get baked into the system. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Hopefully, you know, the changes continue. But uh, where was that article printed so I can direct the, the listeners to it? So it was originally in the Defense Post and then it ended up getting picked up in News. I'll send you the link, but it said the Defense Post. And we'll make it available to our listeners. I think it's a good story to, to kind of keep in mind. Well, I, you know, I want to respect your time. Jeff, it's always great to speak with you. And I know you're extremely busy. So, you know, thanks for taking a few minutes to, to join the show and be on. Great conversation. And I hope to have you back on here and again in the near future. I always love coming on. It's, it's great to talk to you. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, John Knowles of the Journal Electromagnetic Dominance and retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jeff Fisher for joining me. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.